This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. Today, is it ever too late in life to lower your cholesterol? What men choose for their prostates when given the chance? Cannabis use in young people and the risk of depression and suicidality. And an enormous study which might make you think twice about a low-carb diet. The study discovered the extent to which fibre can save you from a heart attack, stroke, diabetes and even premature death. The study leader was Professor Jim Mann, who's a world-leading human nutritionist based at the University of Otago in New Zealand. I spoke to him earlier. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, I thought we knew everything there is to know about fibre. <laughs> well, we really did the study because we have resolved the situation with regard to sugar. And the second question was, how do we decide what are the good carbohydrates to include in the diet? So we undertook a very large systematic review to see which indicators of carbohydrate might be most useful at determining the best carbohydrates in terms of human health. So we looked at dietary fiber, whole grains, glycemic index and glycemic load, and decided on the basis of this huge review that dietary fiber was in fact the best indicator. And we've always known that dietary fiber is protective against a number of diseases. But what we came up with really surprised us in terms of the extent to which dietary fiber is protective against so many important diseases this was really the surprise, the extent to which fibre was protective. This was an enormous amount of data, 135 million person years from studies that have followed people through life and randomised trials with being given fibre. So when you bring that data together, and as you say, you landed on dietary fibre being the key factor rather than necessarily whole grains or the glycemic index, which is how rapidly your blood sugar goes up after you've consumed some carbohydrate, what did you actually find? Dietary fibre, if one had reasonable intakes, and we came up with 25 to 29 as being the right. minimum ideal intake, that's grams per day, protected against the development of colorectal cancer. That was particularly striking. And in fact, it seemed that the further you went beyond 30 grams, the further was the protection against colorectal cancer. Protective against diabetes, protective against cardiovascular disease, a reduction overall in total mortality. And when you say total mortality, you mean age-adjusted, in other words, we're all going to die, but the, the chances of, of prematurely dying. Absolutely. And what does 25 to 29 grams translate into in terms of your whole grain bread or broccoli? That's an important question. One of the interesting things that comes out of this is... Do we have to take fibre supplements or can we get it out of the ordinary food we eat? And the short answer, I think, is we don't know as much about fibre supplements as we do about fibre in the food we eat. So our data relate very much to fibre in food. And you certainly can get that from choosing whole grains if you are eating cereal-based foods, from having vegetables, fruit, 
if you do that and you do have whole grain cereals, you can relatively easily get to 25 grams a day. But what is interesting is that when we look at what the population is eating right now, most of us have less than 20 grams a day. So it really does mean sticking to the guidelines. And it also means that if you are one of those people who is on a low-carb diet, you will have great difficulty in achieving that. Carbohydrates is where we get this fibre from, is your argument. Absolutely. So even if you're having good low carbs, you are not going to achieve those intakes. So I think it should make people want to think about whether there really is benefit to these low carb diets. And when you looked at other markers like weight, cholesterol and other things like that, what were the findings? The information for cholesterol and weight, blood pressure and so on, come from the clinical trials. And fibre is certainly very effective at helping to reduce body weight in those people who are overweight. It's very effective in lowering cholesterol. There is evidence in people with diabetes that fibre is good at lowering blood sugar. The advantage of this kind of information is it helps to make sense of what we get from the prospective cohort studies. So if we say that there's a reduction in diabetes, there's a reduction in cardiovascular disease, it seems that that is mediated via the classical risk factors for those diseases. And it comes to cause and effect because those prospective studies that you were talking about, large numbers of people, even though there's large numbers, it doesn't prove cause and effect, it's just an association. Which brings me to a question about red meat. People have Mm -hmm. argued that one of the reasons, or perhaps even the substantial reason why fibre works, is that you eat less, particularly red meat, and mm. therefore that it's a proxy for the rest of your diet mm. rather than the fibre itself. That is an incredibly important point that you make, and I think applies particularly, of course, to colorectal cancer. Is it true, where reasonable evidence that red meat and processed meat increases the risk of colorectal cancer. And you're, of course, absolutely right that people who have a high-fiber diet, a high-carbohydrate, high-fiber diet, of course, they tend to have less red meat. And to some extent, I think that may well be part of the explanation. But I think the one thing that provides additional evidence, there is an incredibly striking relationship, a dose-response relationship between the amount of fiber people eat and the risk reduction achieved. And that does tend to at least suggest that dietary fiber per se is protective. But we can't exclude the fact that these people also eat less red meat might be a factor. And what about soluble fiber versus insoluble fiber? We did not find much difference between the effects of soluble and insoluble fiber. So how does Mm. this inform what one chooses to Mm. eat and how much in terms of whole grain, vegetables, or doesn't it matter? You've just got to load yourself up with a lot. (laughs) Well, I think these data actually suggest that you load yourself up with some of each. You should have some fiber from whole grain cereals. You should have some fiber from fruit and vegetables and legumes and pulses is really probably one's best bet. Jim Mann, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. There goes the keto diet. Jim Mann is Professor of Medicine at the University of Otago in New Zealand. And you're listening to The Health Report here on RN, ABC News and CBC Radio across Canada. I'm Norman Swan. With one in six Australian high school students smoking cannabis, any health effects can have a significant public health impact. 
While most of the focus on mental health issues in cannabis in young people has been on psychosis and schizophrenia, there are significant risks when it comes to depression and even suicidality. That's according to Canadian research, which has pulled together the available evidence on thousands of young people followed through to adulthood. Gabriella Gobby, Professor of Psychiatry at McGill University in Montreal, led the study. We took children and adolescents that were not depressed before smoking cannabis. So this eliminates the problem. If you say that cannabis is linked to depression, people will say, well, the reason they were taking cannabis was that they were depressed and therefore it's not a surprise. And what you're saying is the studies you chose, the children and adolescents weren't depressed and you yes. followed them through the years and picked them up when they started smoking and then you find out that, you know, whether or not they became depressed later. Exactly, because it's known that adolescents very often smoke cannabis because they're anxious, depressed, to be more sociable, but it's not known if before being depressed, cannabis can be associated with depression and suicidality. Even in people that didn't have any family history for depression or any sign of depression before starting recreational cannabis. So what did you find? What we found that cannabis in adolescents can increase the risk of depression by 40% in young adulthood and 50% the risk of suicidal ideation. And we found that increased risk of suicidal attempt, about three times more. So people had ideas about suicide and there was a much higher risk, 300% higher risk of attempted suicide. What about completed suicide? Unfortunately, it's very difficult to obtain this kind of studies. This is not proving cause and effect, even though you have followed these children and adolescents through very carefully. It still could be that there's something about these children and adolescents which predisposes them to depression and the cannabis is just a marker for that. So one way that you can help to differentiate that is looking at dose. Because if it's a real mm -hmm. effect, the more you smoke, the more likely you'd be to get depression. So was there a dose effect in these studies that the heavier users were more at risk? We tried to see if there was a dose effect, but first, we don't have enough studies. Second, we found studies that see an effect in both daily use as well as in weekly user. And this was not surprising because we know that THC can stay in your body and in your brain for one week or more. So sometimes even if you smoke one joint a week, but the THC, that is the principal cannabis, can stay in your body, in your brain for one week. So probably this is why some studies also find an effect also in weekly users. And presumably then you couldn't work out strength because some breeds of cannabis would have higher levels of THC bred into the plant. Yes, the studies included in this review and meta-analysis were started in the 90s, 80s and 2000. And we know that at that time, THC was quite low in the cannabis, about 6% or 3%. Now, today, 2019, THC is much higher. In Canada, we have a THC of 10-30% as sold by the government because in Canada now cannabis is legal. And today, we don't know which effect this cannabis so high will induce in the young generations. Was there any evidence that if they stopped, the depression went away? There are still not so much literature about this. 
What you've described in this, and I apologise to the audience for getting technical, but it is important, you've described what's called a relative risk increase. In other words, what's your baseline risk of depression and then add on the cannabis if it's cause and effect and what, how much does that increase when you look at the whole group of kids? So you're describing a 40% increase, which sounds really dramatic. But what does it mean for the individual user? Because if your risk is really low of depression... 40% mm-hmm. increase doesn't actually mean very much. So what's the risk for an individual, what they call the absolute risk? This is a limitation of a meta-analysis. We know that a girl, a woman that has a family history for depression, if this person will smoke cannabis, there will be a 40% more of risk of depression. So the higher your baseline risk, the higher the chances are of you getting it. And When you look at the population, you know, the many thousands of young people who are smoking cannabis, the technical terms population attributable risk, of the people in the community with depression, young people with depression, what proportion of them can you say cannabis might be the culprit? Doing this kind of calculation, for example, in Canada, United States, where 20% of people smoke cannabis, it means that 7% of depression that today we have in young adults are attributable to cannabis. This is a huge number. In, uh, in Canada, we estimate about 25,000 cases in the United States, more than 400,000 cases. Gabriella Gobbi is Professor of Psychiatry at McGill University in Montreal. Are you ever too old to get your cholesterol down, especially with statins, the commonest cholesterol-lowering medications? Some people think, yes, that after, say, the age of 75, there isn't much point, and there may be some risk if you've heart failure or kidney damage. But a new review of the evidence led by the National Health and Medical Research Council's Clinical Trials Centre at the University of Sydney suggests that there are significant benefits, at least for many older people. Tony Keach is a cardiologist and Deputy Director of the Clinical Trials Centre. Welcome to the Health Report, Tony. Thank you, Norman. This study, just like actually most of the programme today, is bringing together the available evidence on this issue. Yes, so we've collected all the available evidence on just under 200,000 individuals who've been in the long-term trials of statin treatment versus placebo or controlled treatment uh, over more than five years each. And uh, amongst that, we've got around 15,000 patients who are over 75 years of age. And Now, why do people think that it's not much point? Is it because you're not going to live much longer? Or because if you do what's called your risk score for cardiovascular disease, your chances of getting a heart attack in five or 10 years, age is the strongest risk factor. So when you're 75, you've got a pretty high risk. So why wouldn't you treat everybody? Well, you're exactly right. And in fact, that's really what we've found. But I guess the concern that was in simple terms, I guess, Doctors have wondered whether it's worth it because your risk of dying from other things goes up as well. But it turns out those competing risks are really quite small compared to the major killer of people over 75, which is cardiovascular disease. And once you got to 75, you've probably got another 20 years of life expectancy. Well, in Australia, you do, on average, if you get to 75, live well into the 80s. So what did you find when you actually analysed all these studies? So we found that for the first time ever, we've got independent proof that vascular events are reduced in people over 75 years of age by statin treatment. And this is really quite important. Without any important side effects, no increase in cancer and no increase in non-vascular causes of death. So why do you say cancer and non-vascular? Is this the old hoary thing from right at the beginning of statins where they thought that 
you had a higher risk of car crashes and cancer from earlier studies? Correct, yes. So there was concern about whether statins and lowering cholesterol might cause cancer because there was an obvious epidemiological link between cancer and having a low cholesterol. But I think that in fact reflects that cancer gobbles up cholesterol and causes a low cholesterol rather than the other way around. So what's the extent of the risk reduction? So it's around the same for major vascular events. It's very so similar. major vascular events means heart attack strokes. Yeah, so every one point lower, the bad cholesterol or LDL cholesterol achieved with statin treatment, which is one millimole per litre lower, there's around a 20% reduction in the risk of a vascular event. Now, I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Gabriella Gobbi in a moment. That's, that's relative risk. It's what drug companies yeah. love to tout. But it doesn't mean anything unless you know what your absolute risk is, because your absolute risk is high, it's, it's a big figure, and if it's low, it doesn't really mean very much. That's exactly right. So if you took a 63-year-old, their risk uh, of a major vascular event might be 2.5% a year, versus someone 15 years older at 78 would be 4% a year. And the risk reductions with statins would mean saving uh, 50 events in the 63-year-olds versus 78 events in, no, sorry, 80 events in the 78-year-olds. Uh, so, so it's about 60% more events are avoided using statins in older people and, and people 15 years younger. So I should have asked you this question at the beginning. Is this treating people who, where the GP does your absolute risk score, which, by the way, is not done by a large people over 75 because age dominates, and saying, oh, you're at high risk of a heart attack in the next five years, I'm going to give you statins and lower your blood pressure, or is it people who've already had a heart attack or stroke or angina and therefore at high risk because of that? Yes, that's an excellent question. It's really both, but in fact the evidence is stronger for people who've already had heart trouble or a stroke over 75 than it is for people who've not ever had any vascular trouble. So we still need some more evidence in people who are what we call primary prevention without any prior vascular events over 75 as to the value of statin therapy on and, these events. And how intensive is the statin therapy? Because there is evidence that the more intense, the better, particularly if you've already had a heart attack or stroke. Correct. Overall, the aggregated evidence suggests that the more, the better. We don't have that evidence separately in people over 75. But look, any average statin dose these days would drop the bad cholesterol by one point or one millimole per litre uh, in patients over 75 or younger patients. The effect sizes seem to be very similar. Did any statin manufacturers um, fund this study? No, no. All of the, well, all of the studies that have been collected might have been funded by drug companies back 15 or 20 years ago. But in fact, the aggregation of these studies has been done in, uh, completely independent by an academic group led at the University of Sydney and the University of Oxford. Now, when I read this paper, you hedged a bit. You, you've been very confident about over 75-year-olds in our conversation to this moment, but you hedged it a bit, saying it's a bit rubbery. Well, as I said, in patients over 75 who've never had any heart or stroke trouble, the evidence still needs to be stronger. The point estimate is a similar reduction in the risk, but it's not independent proof yet. And there is a study running in Melbourne called the STAR-E study, which is testing statins in people over 70. Uh, in around 20,000 of them, and hopefully that will also help to get the evidence over the line for people who've not yet had any heart trouble. And where does heart failure 
and kidney damage, which become, does become more common as you get older, fit into this story? Yes, so the evidence on statins in the setting of heart failure or kidney damage is that they don't seem to add any benefit as far as we can tell at this point in time. It's important when looking at this data to look at it both with those patients in the analysis and also without those patients in the analysis where statins don't seem to help. So if you haven't got heart failure and you haven't got kidney damage, should every 75-year-old be on a statin? Well, I think anybody who's already had a heart attack or a stroke definitely should be on a statin, irrespective of age. As well as aspirin. Yes, of course, and, and various other things too. But uh, in patients who've not had any heart trouble or stroke over 75, we still need more evidence. Okay, so before you do it blindly. So what's the point then if you still need more evidence and you're, you're sensibly having a five bob each way? I think that's where the data is at the moment. We've got overall evidence in people over 75 that exactly the same benefits and slightly greater benefits in absolute numbers of events avoided occur in people over 75. But when you look at the data, when you drill down into individuals with and without prior vascular disease, the evidence becomes weaker in those who don't have prior vascular disease. So if I'm sitting in front of the GP and I'm thinking of having it, of 100 people over 75 who are going yep. to take a statin, how yep. many are going to be saved from a heart attack or stroke? Well, you're going to reduce almost by 1% per annum the... Cumulative. Uh, yeah, the cumulative events that occur in those patients. Tony Keach, thank you very much for joining us. A pleasure, Norman. Tony Keach is a cardiologist and a deputy director of the NHMRC's Clinical Trials Centre in, at the University of Sydney. One in five Australian men are diagnosed with prostate cancer before the age of 85. It's probably around 16,000 men each year. These days, many who are diagnosed by PSA testing, that's a controversial blood test, wait and are watched carefully. But even so, there are still thousands of men who choose or need to be treated. The problem has been that GPs tend to refer to urologists, the surgeons. And even if you put aside the financial conflict of interest, surgeons will usually recommend what they know best, which is cunning. And patients who are beguiled by technology such as robotics and the desire to have the tumour out go with that choice, which infuriates radiation oncologists who reckon that men should be offered the option of radiation therapy whose side effects such as incontinence and erectile dysfunction are usually less yet with similar cure rates. But when offered, what do men do? And that's what a study in southwest Sydney tried to find out. In our Sydney studio, our radiation oncologist, Associate Professor Sandra Turner, and psychologist, Dr. Ben Smith. Welcome to you both. Hi, Norman. How prevalent, Sandra, is this issue of not getting referred to radiation oncology? It's a very common issue. It's, it's hard to put an absolute number on it. Um, I'd just like to wheel back a little bit to your intro where you said that radiation oncologists are infuriated by it. I think more to the point... Well, you are, but maybe not everybody else. Is that what you think? <laughs> um, I think radiation oncologists are disappointed because they also um, can offer uh, several very high-tech treatment choices. We might get onto that later, but the problem is that men um, are not best served by the model as it exists. It's quite appropriate that men see urologists who make the diagnosis and do the initial assessment. The problem in Australia is what happens after that. Um, so how, how common is it? It's very common. We work with a lot of men. Um, my colleagues and I see people around Australia and New Zealand and in other countries um, talking to our colleagues. We hear this day in, day out, that many men that we get to see um, if they need radiation therapy afterwards or if we're talking to consumers and consumer groups will say that they were not fully aware of their treatment options. 
And it's particularly a case where they've got slightly more advanced prostate cancer and they're going to need radiation therapy as well and surgery doesn't necessarily add much. We're talking about men who actually require treatment. You're quite correct that a lot of men with low-risk prostate cancer don't require any treatment at all but should go on an active surveillance protocol. But for people that do require treatment or for other reasons um, want treatment, um, the issue is that they're not... Uh, getting to understand both treatment options. And it's not for people that have particularly advanced cancer. Those that do and have an operation are much more likely, if not certain, to need radiation therapy. But even in potentially um, locally... Um, local prostate cancers localised to the prostate, there are still a number that, that may need radiation but more to the point, even if they don't ever need another treatment the point is it should be up to them to weigh up the pros and cons, their preferences, fully understand their treatment options so that they can make an informed decision about which treatment they prefer. So Ben Smith you took advantage, you and Sandra took advantage of a situation which is actually quite unusual in Australia because robots are usually in private hospitals hospitals. Mm -hmm. But Liverpool Hospital, um, there are other public hospitals with robots, but it's one of the few with a robot. So so you're in the public sector and in theory you eliminate financial conflict of interest and -hmm. you've got the robot. What what was the situation you exploited? That was the situation you exploited and what did you do? Well, um, as Sandra mentioned, not a lot of men get to speak to both a urologist and a radiation oncologist before deciding on their uh, prostate cancer treatment. But what happened as part of our study is we instituted a combined clinic so that any man who wanted to be considered for a robotic prostatectomy in the in the public system had to see um, both. And what we saw was that men uh, really valued having the so opportunity. So just, just before mm. you jump ahead, so, the, so in other words, you saw the surgeon and you said, I wanted radiation oncology, but you had to go and see a radiation oncologist. Sorry, I wanted to have the robot. Regardless, you actually went to, you actually had to go and see a radiation oncologist as well to hear the story. That's correct, yeah. And we, we owe it to our uh, urological colleagues at, at Liverpool Hospital that they were agreeable to that. Now, you did a survey of these men. It wasn't a large study, but it just gives an indication of what's going on. You did a survey of these men before they went into the combined clinic. What was their attitudes? What were the choices they were going to make before they went in? Yeah, so at that point, a lot of the men had a strong preference for robotic prostatectomy, partly as you mentioned it was a population that was selected in that way. The main thing that they seemed to be judging uh, or making that judgment on was that they felt it it offered a better cure rate or a more definitive cure than other treatment options like Which, of course, is complete bull. Which is not correct, as you say. Is, there's no difference between that and open operations, but nonetheless, the robot is there. Then they saw the radiation oncologists were offered their options. What happened afterwards? Yeah, so these are not big numbers, but it did seem that the the men who were still undecided at the point of going to the clinic, about 50% then chose to have the robotic um, surgery and another and the other half had uh, had the radiotherapy. So it did seem like it uh, evened up the, the preferences. And those, those were in the undecided group? Correct, yeah. Um, which was about half the sample. It was a small sample. It was only 25 men, so yeah. it's really an indication here. And you and the reaction to having to being to being made to go to this joint clinic, did they, did they hate it or not? No, no. I think even the men who had a strong preference for robotic prostatectomy leading up to that clinic really appreciated the opportunity to have their um, preferences, I guess, um, considered and um, hearing the other side of the story. In some ways, it just aff- in, for some men it just affirmed their preferences. For others, they did change their mind. 
Um, but in general, all men thought it was a really good thing. The, the one thing was that it was too late in the process. I mean, men had already seen a urologist normally a couple of times before that uh, stage, and many had already made up their mind. As all right. Mentioned. So, Sandra, how, how could this work in the private sector, particularly early on? I mean, it puts a lot in the GP, really, doesn't it, in terms mm, of the referral process? It does. Just, just one thing, again, to go back on what you said, I didn't have any part in this study at all. So, I, I, ben, ben and people at Liverpool and the urologists and radiation oncologists there have run this study, um, and they uh, elected to allow me to speak about it. Okay. Um, but, but going back to your, your question, um, um, yes, it is. It's difficult for GPs. I think what we need to do is to empower patients and families and their GPs and make sure we get the word out there that there are several very good and, as you say, equivalent treatment options that have very different pros and cons. And unless somebody has actually had the information from the experts in those fields, they can't possibly be fully aware um, to, to make those decisions. So we would hope that more and more urologists would um, refer patients to see radiation oncologists. And it does happen. I'm, I'm not saying it doesn't across the board. But again, um, general practitioners have an important role uh, and they, they say themselves they believe in this role that they want to help patients navigate what can be a very complicated uh, and confusing system. And they need to encourage men that they have time. Um, they have time to think about their options and they don't need to rush into any treatment. Associate Professor Sandra Turner is a radiation oncologist at Westmead Hospital in Sydney and Ben Smith is a translational research fellow at the Centre for Oncology Education and Research Translation at the University of New South Wales at Liverpool. I'm Norman Swan. This has been The Health Report. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.